Just a word before we begin verse 19, we should remind ourselves of the general context of Luke chapter 16. It has a lot to do with money and material things, and you'll see why that's relevant when we get into the story that Jesus is about to tell that takes up the end of this chapter. But the general context has been to speak about the importance of money and material things and how it's very important that they be put in the right kind of context for those who will be followers of Jesus. So with that in mind, take a look now, starting at verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's tables. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Pretty dramatic beginning to a very dramatic story, don't you think? I mean, right here, the picture is painted with a lot of vividness and clarity. You have two men. One of them is an unnamed rich man. And we don't know anything about this rich man except that he loved to live the high life. He had the best clothes. He ate gourmet foods every day. And he lived his life with a total disregard of others. And why would we say that? Well, we point out the disregard of others because we take a look at this man who sat at his very gate. In other words, this man wasn't out front at the supermarket, so to speak, or down at the village, or there at another place. This man was right at the gate. Sort of literally, you could say, the rich man had to step over this beggar every time he went in. And we're given a name to the beggar. His name was Lazarus. Now, I'm going to tell you something right off the bat that I think, I don't know, in biblical circles, it might be somewhat controversial or it may make me a person of less repute, but I'm just going to give it to you as I see it. I don't believe that this is a parable. Now, most commentators do. The the majority of biblical teachers and researchers look at this particular story and they say this is a parable. But I'll tell you what I think is different about this. Number one, Jesus never called it a parable. Number two, in no other parable that Jesus gives does he mention somebody specifically by name. And this one has a man named Lazarus. And thirdly, the details of this story, though remarkable, are so vivid and so insightful that they could only come from somebody who knew eternity. Jesus alone was qualified to tell us this story. No, I suppose if there was a dramatic, miraculous revelation, then maybe Isaiah or Paul or another one of the prophets of old could have given it. But Jesus could have known these people intimately and with firsthand knowledge. Now, again, I want to stress, you know, you may read Bible commentators and listen to other people preach on this passage, and they may present it as a parable. But I just want to be right up front. I'll stick with the minority opinion and say this is not a parable. This is a story. It's a true story. I believe that this rich man really existed. I believe that this poor, pathetic man named Lazarus really existed. And what Jesus is about to describe about their lives really happened. But again, we take a look. There's the certain rich man described in verse 19. He's clothed in purple. He fared sumptuously. By the way, William Barclay says that the idea behind the phrase fared sumptuously is that he feasted on gourmet exotic foods, and he did it every day. By the way, the rich man isn't given a name in this story, but traditionally, people have called him Dives. 
because apparently that's Latin for rich. So just the rich man. And then now we see in verses 20 and 21, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, and he was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed from the crumbs. And I want to emphasize that he wasn't far from the rich man. This wasn't a man down the street. This wasn't a man in another city. This wasn't a man in some other place. The rich man literally had to step over this poor beggar every day when he went in and out of his home. And the rich man didn't do anything against Lazarus. We have any indication that he kicked him as he walked by. We have any indication that he cursed him as he saw him on the street. What was the rich man's sin towards Lazarus? Utter, complete neglect. Which, by the way, you must admit, is an especially terrible form of hatred. You know, if you really hate somebody, you may not even attack them. You may hate them by saying, as far as I'm concerned, you just simply do not exist and I'm going to ignore you. Anyway, that's how the rich man was towards Lazarus. And then you have these two men. They lived basically in the same space. They could occupy the same space within just a few yards of one another. But you have to admit, it was two completely different worlds. The world of the beggar and the world of the rich man were completely different. So much so that verse 21 tells us that the poor man Lazarus longed to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the master's table. William Barclay says, and I've never heard this before, but I'll just pass on to you what, again, this commentator, William Barclay, says. He says that certain rich people in that day and age, in that day you would eat with your hands. You didn't use utensils. And so to clean your hands, they would use hunks of bread. And if you were rich enough, you would clean your hand with a hunk of bread and then just toss it. This is what the poor man longed for, these scraps of sort of hand-stained bread that would go from the hands of the rich man. And then if all of that wasn't terrible enough, you've got to admit the touch at the end of verse 21 is especially poignant. The dogs came and licked his sores. My son had a question about that. He goes, Dad, what kind of sores do dogs love to lick and all this kind of thing? I don't know. I don't think I want to know. It's just a terrible, disgusting picture, isn't it? Okay, now, you got the picture? Now, verse 22, the story, not the parable, the story continues on. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by angels, by the angels, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I want you to notice something. Verse 22 tells us that something remarkable happened, that the beggar died and that the rich man also died and was buried. You might say, well, so what? What's so unusual about that? People die every day, and it's true. People die every day. Sometimes they die expectedly. Sometimes they die unexpectedly. And you could just imagine the contrast between the deaths of these two men. I mean, there's the poor man begging outside of the gate. And when he dies, who takes notice? Would you please notice that it says in the text that the rich man was buried. It says nothing of the burial of Lazarus. For all we know, he was thrown into a pit. He was thrown into a garbage dump. Nobody cared. Nobody mourned. But there's the bed of the rich man. And especially his children are surrounding that bed, aren't they? They're very anxious about the passing of their wealthy father. And there's tears and there's mourning. And maybe there's anticipation of what they're going to do with the inheritance and on and on and on. 
He passed with great mourning, with great attention. I'm sure it was a marvelous funeral. I'm sure that no expense was spared. But what I want you to understand is that death was not the end for either one of these men. You see, because even though the poor man named Lazarus had no burial mentioned, he had something mentioned that the rich man did not have. Who carried him away to Abraham's bosom? The angels. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? The idea of the angels taking him and carrying him away, giving him special care. Now, I'm going to say something that seems very obvious, but sometimes the obvious things are the things we need to talk about the most. I entirely believe that the rich man's body stayed in the ground. I entirely believe that Lazarus's, the poor man's, the beggar's body remained on whatever pit he was thrown into. Yet nevertheless, they did not cease to exist, did they? There was an immaterial part of their being that continued to live on. The death of their physical body was not the death of their being. It wasn't just like, well, the rich man lived a good life, the poor man lived a bad life, they died, and that's the end of the story. No. In a way, that's only the beginning of the story. Because death of the physical body was not the end of life for either one of these men. And can we please just remember that? Even though it's so simple, it's so elementary, I I dare say that probably everybody in this room says, of course, we believe that we live on after this death. But do you really believe it? Do you really understand it? Do you really believe that this life is not all there is, but that there is a life beyond that is worth thinking about and preparing for and considering in everything that you and I do? I just want to stress the point again because I think it's so important. Death did not end existence for these two men. But neither should we understand that they both had the same existence after death. No, what do we see? The poor man, Lazarus, was carried away by the angels and he went to a place known as Abraham's bosom. Now, what is it? such a strange phrase, isn't that? And it is admitted. What's, what's going on here? Abraham's bosom, what is that? Well, the idea is the idea of cradling something or embracing something close to the chest. And it can have a few different ideas. One is the idea that in death, the righteous are gathered to the patriarchs in faith. You'll see this phrase used a few times in the Old Testament. It says, and he was gathered unto his fathers. He was gathered unto his fathers in death. And the idea is, when the faithful die, they are gathered unto the faithful in heaven. And isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a beautiful thought that some great man or woman in the faith, maybe a great man or woman in in the history of the faith, maybe someone who's very dear to your personal life, maybe it's a grandparent or a parent, somebody who's a great spiritual influence on your life. When you go to heaven, you're going to go into their bosom. They're going to embrace you warmly when you get to heaven. That's one part of the idea. There's another part of the idea of simply that it speaks of a parent's love and care. After all, John chapter 1, verse 16 says this. It speaks of Jesus 
the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, the Father and the Son have this love relationship. And it means that not only are there people that we love in the world beyond, but there's a relationship of love. And it can also have a third aspect to it. It's simply the idea of privilege. Because to be seated at someone's bosom in a banquet, to be right up against them in a banquet, was a position of honor as shown by the position of the Apostle John there at the Last Supper of Jesus. So really it just speaks of this place of blessedness where Abraham is and he was gathered to this place. Can I just say it to you this way? Lazarus, the beggar, went to a good place. The rich man did not go to a good place. I mean, look at what it says of the rich man. It says that he was in torments in Hades. In torments in Hades. Now, I don't want anybody to think for a moment that Lazarus, the beggar, was saved by his poverty. Not for any more reason that we should think that the rich man was damned by his wealth. No, the difference between them was not their wealth, their relative station in life. The difference between them was that Lazarus must have had a real relationship with the living God. And the rich man did not. Their life circumstances made faith either easier or more difficult... But it was the faith, not their life circumstances, that demonstrated their eternal destiny. In other words, I think it was easier for a man who had nothing, such as the beggar, to trust God. He had to trust God for his food every day, did he not? It was a greater obstacle for the rich man, who didn't seem like he had to trust God, at least not for the daily bread he eat. It would be more difficult for him to trust God. But nevertheless, it wasn't because of their relative wealth that they went one to another place. No, quite instead, it was because it was because of their trust or lack thereof in the living God. But look at the situation here described in verse 23 of the rich man. It says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Two things I want you to notice here. First of all, it demonstrates to us that it was not a difference between rich and poor. Because I'll tell you, one man who was richer than this rich man, Abraham. Abraham was unbelievably wealthy. And so God isn't trying to say this, well, the rich go to hell while the poor go to heaven. No, no. But again, we don't want to get too far away from the context. Jesus was warning the wealthy and the materialistic about what they do with things. And that's relevant to this story, of course. But that's one aspect. Look at the other one. The rich man in his torments can look afar off and he can see Abraham and Lazarus. It doesn't seem to him like he's very far from them. Well, I don't know. I'd be fascinated what exactly that was like. Maybe it'd be like the difference between being at one end of this room and the other end of the room. Certainly you could see a person who's standing at different parts of the room. It's not like they're terribly close, but neither are they that far off. He could look across the chasm. He could look across the expanse of space, and he could see both Abraham, and he could see Lazarus. Nevertheless, he was in torment while Lazarus, the beggar, enjoyed the comfort and the care of Abraham. Can I quote our dear old friend John Trapp here? He has a way of phrasing things, does he not? This is what John Trapp said about the rich man's condition. 
having punishment without pity, misery without mercy, sorrow without succor, crying without compassion, mischief without measure, torments without end, past imagination. Well, that was his condition. Again, notice this. Verse 23 says, being in torments in Hades. Now, without one word Hades, Jesus described a place. I mean, he didn't say in uh, Antarctica. He didn't say in Cleveland. He said in Hades, a particular place. Well, what is this place, Hades, that Jesus mentioned? You see, it's interesting to see that the rich man and Lazarus were not in the same place, yet they were not terribly far from one another. It would be fair to say that they were actually in two different places, two different regions or areas of the same general place. You know, it was as if you divided this room into one part, in this one room into two parts. And I'm not going to say which one of you is Abraham's bosom and which one of you is the place of torment. But, you know, just divide the room mentally in two parts. Again. Okay, well, one part, it's one room. One part of it is a place of blessedness. The other part of it is a place of torment. Now, from this story of Jesus, we find some hints describing the world beyond as it existed in the past and how it exists now. From Jesus' description, we may say that at one time, before the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the spirit or the soul of a human being went to a place called Hades. I mean, in death, both of these men with two different eternal destinies, they went to the same general place, but for one, they were in an area of blessing, and another, they were in an area of torment. And so here we see the difference. And it's described by the word Hades. Hades is a Greek word. It was the word used by the ancient Greeks to refer to what they just called the underworld, the place of the dead. It was sort of the afterlife, the place beyond. It's not a terribly specific word. Now, this Greek word Hades seems to carry much the same meaning as the Hebrew Old Testament word Sheol which you find translated many times in the Old Testament, and oftentimes it's translated as the grave. It's just the place of the dead. It's where the dead go. And apparently what Jesus is telling us is things that are sort of indicated, although we have a more clear picture from this particular story, but that before the finished work of Jesus Christ, the dead went to a place. It was the same general place, but for some of them they were in the area of blessing. For some of them they were in an area of torment. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Hades, technically speaking, is not what we usually think of as hell or what is sometimes called the lake of fire. That place is identified with the word Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a Greek word that's borrowed from the ancient Hebrew language. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus spoke of hell or Gehenna. It's a place outside of Jerusalem's wall referring, excuse me, it's referring metaphorically to what's known as the Valley of Hinnom. And it's a place outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem that was basically a garbage dump. 
And in that garbage dump, they would throw just refuse. They would throw smoldering things, and there would be burning and worms and decay. And it was just so wretched, and fires and heat smoldered from it all the time that it became a picture in the Jewish mind of hell, of eternal burning, of eternal disgusting uh, surroundings of this place that is associated with the Valley of Hinnom and is known as Gehenna. When later on the book of Revelation identifies a place known as the Lake of Fire, it would seem to us that Gehenna and the Lake of Fire are the same thing. And let me tell you this, what we can understand from the book of Revelation, there's nobody in the Lake of Fire now. There's nobody in Gehenna now. That awaits the final judgment. That right now, the dead, I would say this, the unbelieving dead, upon their death, they go to Hades. And they are in this place of torment that is described here in this story in Luke chapter 16. But one day, they will appear before God in judgment. And at the end of that judgment, they will be consigned to the lake of fire. So Hades is something of a waiting place until the day of final judgment. Yet since the finished work of Jesus on the cross, there is no waiting for believers who die. In other words, we know very plainly from the scriptures that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That there's no waiting place and certainly no purgatory or anything like that for believers. No, when we pass from this life to the next, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. That's why Jesus could say to the thief of the cross in anticipation of his finished work, today you will be with me in paradise. There would be no delay, no Hades. So what happened to the good part of Hades? Well, this is apparently what happened at the finished work of Jesus. And in those days, in his entombment, between the time that he was in, uh, put in the tomb and the time that he was evidently raised from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning, that one of the things that Jesus did is he went to Hades and he freed those who were in Hades and led them to heaven on the basis of his completed work. And by the way, it makes perfect sense. That someone such as this beggar known as Lazarus, that he could not yet graduate to heaven yet because the price had not yet been paid at the cross. He went to a blessed place. He went to a good place, but it was not yet the fulfillment of heaven. He was awaiting the final payment that Jesus would bring by his work on the cross. But once that happened, he could go to heaven. And therefore now Hades, we would say, doesn't have two areas. Hades now just has one area. And those who die in the Lord go directly to heaven. Those who die apart from the Lord go to Hades, awaiting the final judgment and eventually the lake of fire. That's how we would put things together to the best of our knowledge. Well, what happened then with this particular rich man? There he is in the torments of Hades. And what does he say? Look at it here in verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you were tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed 
so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. I find it fascinating that the rich man was no doubt a Jewish man because he called upon Abraham as his father. Father Abraham, have mercy on us. Now this one, understand, Abraham did not disown him. Abraham, you know, child of mine. Abraham didn't say that. No, no, he recognized that it was true that this man, this rich man, was a descendant of Abraham. But you know this, being a biological descendant of Abraham is not enough to see anybody to heaven. No, they must have a personal trust in who God is and what he had done for them, especially in the provision through the Messiah. Now I want you to notice something. The tables have turned. Who's the beggar now? Now the rich man is begging Uh, Abraham, please send Lazarus that he may dip his uh, finger in some water and just cool my tongue for a moment. Now, isn't it interesting that in verse 24 when he says that, you see that even in the afterlife, the rich man thinks he owns Lazarus. Even in the afterlife, he's like, yeah, you know, snap it up here, Lazarus. Come on over and give me a hand. Now, even in that, he thinks Lazarus should be his servant should be his helper. Now, please notice this. He knew who Lazarus was. He couldn't plead ignorance. He knew that man. He goes, well, I walked over that man every day when I went into my house. Yeah, that man you walked over, the man you think could come over and help you out right now, Abraham says, it's not happening. This one, I want you to notice though as well. Death did not take away the rich man's sense of entitlement It didn't take away his sense of station in life, but more pointedly than anything, it did not take away his sense of desire. Is there anything worse than having thirst that can never be quenched? Friends, the suffering that people will endure in separation from God in eternity to come, this perhaps is the worst aspect of it. They will suffer from desire that can never be fulfilled. In fact, you can make an incredible contrast with what it will be like for believers in heaven. In heaven, it will be utterly, completely, beautifully, perfectly satisfied desire. In heaven, not a bit of it. Not a bit. So much so that the man longed just for the most momentary, brief, passing uh, diminishment of his desire just for a drop of water on my tongue to cool it. And Abraham says, nope, it can't happen. There will be no satisfaction of your desire. Why? Well, first, he calls his attention, the rich man's attention, to the idea of verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Look, you had all your enjoyment of the good things in this world. And therefore, you now are a contrast, Mr. Rich Man, to the story of the unjust steward. Do you remember the story of the unjust steward that we took a look at last week? Do you remember that story? About the man who, through his own deviousness and really double dealing, but yet he used his present station in life to prepare for the next. The rich man in this story didn't do any of that. None of it. He didn't use any of his present position to prepare for the world to come. And then you know what? He has nothing in the world to come. 
So that's the first reason Abraham gave him. But then in verse 26, there's a second reason why he gave him, why the help was not coming. Look at this. It's even more frightening. He says, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Though the rich man could see Abraham, though he could speak with Abraham, he wasn't close to him at all. There was some kind of gulf. There was some kind of chasm that separated them. And this is what Abraham's saying. There is no bridge between the two. Once your eternity is there in torment, it's going to be that way forever. Gone is the idea of soul progression. Gone is the idea of reincarnation. Gone is the idea of annihilation. Gone is the idea of purgatory. Gone is the idea of limbo. It's one or the other. You're either there in torment for eternity, and there is a great gulf fixed between the two. Now, let me tell you very frankly, this is something that I find difficult to speak about. Not because I don't understand the biblical passages. I find it difficult to speak about it because I do understand the biblical passages. It is so clear and so strong and so sobering that it makes us step back. And we think about ourselves, we think about our loved ones. We think about people that we care about and we realize how important it is for them to end up on the right side of that great gulf. Because if you end up on the wrong side, there's no bridge. Abraham just said, it's as if he said this to the rich man, Mr. Rich Man, I'm sorry, it just can't happen. Even if I wanted to. Even if I wanted to send lives, it's just not going to happen. The way God has engineered it, the way he has made it, It doesn't happen. And this, this is sobering. Now please understand this. All this happened to the rich man's spirit or soul and the immaterial part of his body was still buried. Yet he did not cease existence. He did not suspend his life. He still was aware and existing and able to feel this torment in the world beyond. Verse 27, you you sense the desperation of the rich man now? Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Now again, would you please notice this? Who's begging now? Look at verse 27. I beg you, Father Abraham. Now it's the rich man begging. And this idea that must overwhelm the consciousness of the rich man on this particular occasion. It's too late. It's too late. 
It's too late. It's too late for me. Maybe it's not too late for some people that I know and love on earth. I think about my brothers, those in my father's house. I have five brothers over there. Maybe they can awaken in time. Maybe I can get a message to them to warn them. So he says again, isn't it fascinating? Verses 27 and 28, treating Lazarus like the servant again. Send Lazarus for me. Make Lazarus do this. It would seem that the rich man still thought of Lazarus as a servant to him, and he asked Abraham to send him on another assignment. I don't know. Maybe he thought that Lazarus could go in a dream. Maybe he thought he could go in a vision. Maybe he could go, you know, haunting them in the night. I don't really know. But he said, please go for the benefit of my brothers. Now, obviously, the rich man remembered and cared about his relatives even when he passed from earth to the life to come. His memory was not wiped clean. He was not given a new awareness or a consciousness. He could remember, no doubt, with incredible regret all the ways that he had wasted his own life and now he trembled with fear to consider that his own brothers were wasting their lives. And this is his passion. Look at it there in verse 28. He says, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now he cares about other people not going to the place of torment. He lived his whole life utterly unconcerned about this, either for himself or for others. Did he live five minutes of life when he walked this earth caring about whether he went to that place of torment? Probably not. Did he live five minutes of life when he walked this earth caring if other people went to this place of torment? And ladies and gentlemen, this is something that I think is so important for us to have and for us to hold on to, this vital awareness that it matters whether or not we go to heaven and hell or it matters whether or not other people go to heaven and hell. And this is why, this is why we want to bring the life-changing message of who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross to as many people as we can, both in our own circle, beyond our own circle, and to the ends of the earth. That's why we have a missions team in Ireland right now. That's why we have missionary teams going over. That's why we hit the farmer's market every Tuesday. That's why we preach the gospel, invite people to know Jesus right in this table, in this room. That's why we have an evangelistic concern, because it matters. But do you see that if it doesn't matter to you now, it doesn't matter how much it concerns you once you pass to the world to come. All his concern now was wasted. Now, Abraham's reply is startling. Look at it there in verse 29. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham pointed out to the rich man, your brothers have all they need. (laughs) Friend, they've got Abraham and the prophets. Excuse me, they've got Moses and the prophets. Look at what Moses says. If you listen to Moses, he'll point you to the Savior. If you listen to the prophets, he'll point you to the Savior. If you listen to Moses and the prophets, you'll keep from ending up where you are. Now, listening to Moses and the prophets and doing what they said was enough. It should be enough for anybody. Now, friends, let me just put it to you this way. If the Bible itself and God's word, God's truth given to us in his word, if that's not enough to persuade a human heart, what else is it going to take? 
Let me get a little Spurgeon ask on you here. Quote, When God's whole creation, having been ransacked by the hand of science, has only testified to the truth of revelation, when the whole history of buried cities and departed nations has but preached out the truth that the Bible is true, when every strip of land in the far-off east has been an exposition and a confirmation of the prophecies of Scripture, if men are yet unconvinced, do you suppose that one dead man rising from the tomb would convince them? I mean, don't you see that's how it lays out? Here it is. It's the truth. No, 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 I, I don't want that. I want something else. Sorry. This is it. This is how I feel sometimes when people um, so pointedly reject Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. Or when they say that God should provide another way of rescue from the fallenness of humanity. I like to picture it this way. As somebody looking at Jesus, dying, bleeding, suffering on the cross, there he is in all of his agony, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, come here to earth, living as a servant, pouring out every aspect of his being as a sacrifice to save sinful man, look upon Jesus on the cross, and then say to God, yeah, that's nice, but can you do something else? Really? Do something more than this? And the message that God has given us in his word, if it's not enough, it'll never be enough. Not for anybody. Now look at what the rich man says finally here, and we're getting close to the end. Verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Isn't it interesting how the rich man immediately objects? He says, "Uh, could you send Lazarus? And Abraham goes, I'm not sending Lazarus. They got Moses and the prophets. What does the rich man immediately think? My brothers won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They'll never listen to Moses and the prophets. So what does Abraham say? Sorry about that. I got nothing else. If they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe it even though somebody rises from the dead to come and bring them the message. The rich man knew what his brothers had to do. They had to repent. And he mistakenly thought that if Lazarus came and delivered a message, or if somebody came back from the dead, it might persuade them to repent. But let me tell you something. Do you know what the unbeliever thinks the problem is with the Bible? The unbeliever thinks that the Bible already speaks too much about hell and judgment. What do they want? Another voice telling them about hell and judgment? If you're not going to believe the message from the Bible, couched as it is in so much love and grace and deliverance, if you're not going to believe it there, you're not going to believe it anywhere. And this is why we just say, oh, Lord, make our ears attentive to Moses and the prophets and to hear the message that comes from them. Now, of course, you knew the irony at the end there of verse 31, did you not? Neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. You caught that, didn't you? I wonder if Jesus gestured towards himself when he said that. And if people aren't persuaded by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection, what, you're waiting for God to do something more? No, God, I know all that you did on the cross and the empty tomb, great. But if you just brought me a hot fudge Sunday, then I would believe. What? What is that? I mean, is 
You see how crazy that kind of thinking gets? No, he, he's given it to us. He's given us his message. And here's the point. Are we going to be people that listen to Moses and the prophets? What a terrible thing it is to close your ears to God's revelation and somehow sort of demand that he make it better. It's not going to happen. He's given it to us. He's given it to us. In fullness and in perfection, now we simply receive it. Father, that's my prayer for all of us, that we would receive good things from your word, that you would speak to us, Lord, about the seriousness of this life and the next. The Father, as much as anything, that you would prepare our hearts for eternity. We believe what you say in your word, that you have placed eternity in their hearts. And because we believe you've done that, we ask that you would help us to listen to Moses, to the prophets, to your word, and live and walk after you in a way that gives you glory. Do it, Lord, among us in Jesus' name. Amen.